In the summer of 1616, John Hemming and Henry Condell found that a friend had left them some money in his will with the understanding that they would go have some jewelry made. In Elizabethan England, it was common practice to leave friends and family members money earmarked to buy commemorative rings and necklaces. Kind of a remember me by wearing this thing token of affection and appreciation. And aside from some furniture in a small house for his widow, that was all that was in their friend's will. And they probably, though we don't know, weren't at all surprised by this. After all, their friend was a moderately well-known writer whose reputation was in decline. He hadn't written anything new in a decade, and more than half of his work remained unpublished. And no one would have been surprised if he, like the vast majority of writers who have ever lived, would become one of literary history's footnotes. A writer who made a living and did some good work, but pretty soon would fade from memory. But Hemming and Condell thought that their friend deserved better than that. And so, with the aid of an ingenious and enterprising bookseller, they decided to create a monument to their friend in the form of a giant book of his collected works. And maybe, just maybe, they could rescue him from obscurity. And I know at this point you're wondering, did it work? Okay, so you be the judge. Have you heard of this person named... William Shakespeare? Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In this episode, we go back and see how the single most famous, most influential, and some would say most brilliant and creative person ever to put words together almost amounted to nothing. And how a big risky bet on a big book changed the course of the entire future history of language and art. Uh, Rebecca, do you think I'm overselling it? (laughs) Maybe. Let's just tell the story and let the people decide. Deal. Let's get cooking after the break. This episode of Book Riot's annotated podcast is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. Want to give audiobooks a try for your next book club pick but don't know where to start? Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for great collections to get you going. With roundups like spring book-to-movie adaptations and listicles such as eight listens from women writers around the world, Penguin Random House Audio provides themes to choose from along with suggested questions and discussion points for your next book club meeting. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot and bring your book club meetings to a new level. Start listening today. You know, one of the reasons I like doing this show is that it reminds me that all the great names and works that we know, from Austin to Homer to Shakespeare to whoever, it wasn't written in the stars that we should know any of them. And Shakespeare, more than any other writer, is such a part of how we understand literature and maybe even the world that the idea that there was a very real possibility, even a probability, that he would not become, well, Shakespeare, is kind of like saying, did you know that the sky was almost, maybe should have been yellow? I think it wasn't inevitable. Now, uh, other people may feel, uh, of course, these were, you know, amazing works. They were bound to be preserved. Um, they were bound to be uh, brought to light at, at some point. I feel it's a bit more touch and go than that. This is Emma Smith. She has written extensively about Shakespeare's writing and especially about the history of the book that made his name. We refer to it now as the first folio, but its official title is Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies from the original true copies. I think one thing to understand in trying to wrap your head around this alternate history in which neither you nor I know who Shakespeare is, is that when Hemming and Condell got the cash for their goth death rings, Shakespeare's name was already fading. He died in 1616. He'd been retired from the theatre a couple of years before that. This is a theatre, performed drama, is all about new plays, new men. It's a young person's game. Shakespeare is dropping out of the performance repertoire of the King's Men, his old uh, company. Absolutely not the latest thing. And I think 
it is very contingent, very happenstance that he gets this folio published at all. It's difficult to know exactly what Shakespeare's stature was in his day, but judging from the rate at which his plays were being published and performed, it does seem that Shakespeare was falling out of favor and fast. Professor Smith notes two trends in Shakespeare's life and in the years immediately following his death that would seem to support this. First, the rate at which his plays were being performed was dropping off rapidly. In the theater season of 1612 to 1613, three years before his death, seven of the 18 plays were by Shakespeare, almost half. Ten years later, only one of the plays was Shakespeare, and the same was true in 1630, just a single play, A Midsummer Night's Dream. I know some of you are wondering. And on the publishing front, things were looking equally grim. There was a flurry of single-play editions of his work starting in 1593, but the number of editions in the years after that until his death declined, even as he was writing new plays. And one consequence of this declining publishing draw was that most of his later plays were never in print in his lifetime. It all seems like the career trajectory of early success followed by a long, slow fade. If you were a theater buff in 1616 and you had just heard that Shakespeare died and you wanted to go pick up a few of his plays, your choices were limited. Plays that are now household names, Macbeth, Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Twelfth Night, Measure for Measure, The Winter's Tale, Anthony and Cleopatra, As You Like It, The Comedy of Errors, The Hemming of the Shrew, they were nowhere to be found. There's an awful lot of back projection from where we are now or what we think about Shakespeare now, which suggests that people would have been really desperate to have the chance to look again at plays that they that hadn't yet been printed and that people would have been really keen for this prestigious and imposing volume. This is the weirdest part for me, or at least the part that's hardest to understand. Shakespeare's popularity is waning and maybe full-on waned by the time he died in 1616. And then seven years after that, Hemming and Condell throw in with a money man named Edward Blount to produce a volume of Shakespeare's collected plays, remember half of which have never been published and are God knows where. And they plan to do it in a giant, luxurious, expensive edition that no one really has any reason to believe will sell. Coming up, the literary and publishing marvel that is the first folio that they made and what it does and does not tell us about Shakespeare. This episode of Book Riot's annotated podcast is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. As the premier publisher in the audiobook industry, Penguin Random House Audio is dedicated to producing top quality audiobooks written and read by the best in the business. Today, they're recommending Feel Free by Zadie Smith for your next book club pick. Zadie Smith has done it again with Feel Free, an eclectic essay collection covering everything from recent events in culture and politics to intimate musing on Smith's own life. The audio is brilliantly brought to life by narrator Nikki Amuka. Bird, whose British voice is a marvel, according to Audiophile Magazine's Rave Review. It is the perfect listen for some reflection on the world today and a great conversation starter for your next book club meeting. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for more book club suggestions and other titles from Penguin Random House Audio. The first folio is a huge book, 900 pages in folio format which means the book measures roughly 9 by 13 inches. The text is dense to fit all 36 plays in, and it probably costs something like a few hundred of today's dollars. At the time, it represented an enormous investment by its publisher, the aforementioned Edward Blount, and the printer, Isaac Jaggard. And knowing what we know about Shakespeare's sales potential at the time, the size kind of doesn't make sense. 
It feels to me as if the first folio is an attempt to create the demand for Shakespeare and satisfy it all in one parcel. It's not responding to existing demand. I think that's quite important. So it's trying to market the thing that it is, which is, by my reading, a new way to think about drama. So my sense of what the first folio does is to accept, perhaps, that Shakespeare's life in the theatre is waning a little bit, the life of those plays in performance is waning a bit, and instead to reboot them, if you like, for a quite different audience, for a reading audience, for an audience in the study, uh, for an audience in the library. This is a sense that Shakespeare's plays should be consumed as literary artefacts. And this was something new, to consider and publish plays as capital L literature. If Shakespeare was no longer current, the case to be made was that he was timeless. And the first folio, by taking a form largely reserved for Bibles and major works from classical antiquity, was making a case about what Shakespeare was. The size of the book clearly had a meaning. This book is big and important because Shakespeare is big and important. But the size of the book also played a somewhat unexpected role in Shakespeare's eventual canonical status. Because it was so big and so expensive, people kept it, and they took care of it, which means that a surprisingly high number of copies still exist today. More than a third of the 700 are known to exist at least in partial form, and this is almost 500 years later. Now, maybe Hemming and Condell and their publishing partner, Edward Blount, might have imagined that this unprecedented deluxe edition would make it seem special. But they could not have imagined that English politics would inadvertently give Shakespeare's legacy a huge break. In 1642, the Puritans rose to power in Parliament, and they did what Puritans do, harsh everyone's buzz. In this case, that meant closing all theaters in England. This had two effects that were good for Team Shakespeare. First, if you liked plays, well, you couldn't go see them anymore, so you had to read them. And by golly, what was the most extensive and complete volume of plays you could get? The first folio. And if there are no theaters putting up productions, well, then there's really no reason for playwrights to be cranking out plays. Which makes sense, but then when the Puritans lost power and the theaters wanted to reopen, there was a distinct shortage of material to perform. When the theatres reopen in 1660, when Charles II comes back, the Brits get the monarchy back and they get theatre back straight away. And Charles wants the theatres opened really quickly. And so uh, there's a great sort of scrabble to find, you know, how are we going to get these theatres up and running within a matter of weeks? What are we going to perform? There's been no plays, new plays written. What is it that the king wants? What is it that the court wants? And there they are, just sitting on the shelf, 36 plays, ready to go. And not only that, but the kind of people who bought the first folio in the first place were just the kind of wealthy theater patrons who would be crucial in getting plays produced after the theaters reopen. One of the copies of this book we've got was owned by the Killigrew family. And they're a family of actor managers who are really crucial to getting the theater up and going again in the 1660s. And I like to think it's because they've got that book that they think, OK, let's get Shakespeare up. That's the thing. It was clear that Hemming and Condell, in creating their massive book, Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, were attempting to create a sort of Shakespeare box set, a complete, definitive volume of all 36 scripts the playwright had ever written. And over time, the first folio itself was seen as just that, complete and definitive. But then what do we do knowing that with the enormous success of the first folio, a second folio was eventually produced? And a third, and more, 
And with each edition, different versions of Shakespeare's various plays were unearthed, assembled, and published. Which are the definitive versions? Most scholars stick with Heming and Condell's first folio. But then what about Pericles or Two Noble Kinsmen, two plays that most scholars think now were at least partially written by Shakespeare, but because they weren't in the first folio, exist in a sort of bibliographic limbo? Inclusion in the first folio became a bright line of demarcation, at least in the public's imagination, even if it really wasn't that simple. Take, for example, the previously published play, Troilus and Cressida, which is included in the first folio. Well, sort of. It took them a long time to get the rights for Troilus and Cressida, perhaps because the the stationer who'd already printed it had a lot of copies that he hadn't sold. He was obviously kicking up about the terms. And it looks as if until quite late in the preparation of the book, Troilus and Cressida just isn't going to be in it. It's not in the catalogue of all the plays which are included because that's already been typeset before permission comes through. If it had taken a couple more weeks, probably they would have just dropped that and said, OK, we can't get the rights for that. So just leave it out. And then that would have left 400 years of scholars saying, well, perhaps it wasn't really by Shakespeare. And indeed, the very first copies printed of the first folio didn't have the play at all. A few have the first few pages and that's it. But at least there were some copies that included the play. So Troilus and Cressida made it into the Shakespeare canon by the hair of its chinny chin chin. But not poor Pericles. Looking back, we seem to know why Heming and Condell were invested in their old pal's success. But what was in it for the book's publisher, Edward Blount? Why would he invest so much in a playwright whose star had frankly dimmed? Blount is really what looks, in retrospect, like a literary publisher. He seems to pick things because of their literary merit as much as for any other consideration. He's got a really good eye. He's the man who publishes... Don Quixote, for example, in English translation. He publishes the essays of Montaigne. He's got a European-wide sense of what's going to be important. He looks like the person who might have picked out Shakespeare and thought, actually, this one's a keeper. Let's do it. But while Edward Blount had the capital and the knowledge and the desire to print a massive, expensive volume, he wouldn't have even known who to ask, or for that matter, what to ask for. But Heming and Condell would have. So half of those plays have not been printed before. So Blount hasn't got any problems about prior copyright, but he does need to get hold of a physical copy in order to have something for his print shop guys to work with, to work from, to to set in print. They weren't kept in a more organised or archival way. Unless they're printed, plays have a very, very low survival chance. So it was the perfect partnership. And though we really don't know exactly where Heming and Condell got the text for the 16 plays that are new in the first folio, they were the right people to get them. They had been actors and employees at the Globe Theatre, which, according to the copyright laws of the time, were the rightful owners of Shakespeare's work. At that time, writing a play was basically work for hire. You write Hamlet, you get a fee, and then the theater owns the work. But where exactly did the manuscripts for the unpublished plays come from? We don't know. Some of them might have been sitting around, total and complete, scrawled in longhand, gathering dust on a shelf at the Globe. But some of them weren't. And we know this because the new plays don't all look the same when they are printed in the first folio. Some have stage directions, some don't. Some have a cast of characters, some don't. And of course, as we see with future folios, there are straight-up extra scenes from like Hamlet that no one knows what to do with. All this suggests that Heming and Condell had to scrape and scrounge from directors, actors, scribes, and really anyone who might have ever touched a manuscript page. I'm going to be romantic for just a moment. 
We don't exactly know why all these people took such a risk and went through all the effort. But I like to think that Hemming and Condell knew that what Professor Smith just said was true, that these plays were going to be forgotten unless they could get them published. And if all that remained of Shakespeare were these cheap individual copies, they too were going to quickly disappear. It didn't matter how great they were, they weren't going to survive on their own. However wonderful the work of literature, it does actually need some organization, some other people, some usually non-literary people to bring it to light. The First Folio is a wonderful combination of immense artistic literary value and uh, produced by a commercial industry and by people with a commercial impetus. And the dedication to the First Folio from John Hemmings and Henry Condell is absolutely wonderful on this in its very opening line. The address is to the great variety of readers. And you think, oh, how great, you know, that's saying Shakespeare is for everyone. And then that goes on to say, you know, so you are numbered. We had rather you were weighed. You know, the fate of all books depends not upon your minds, but your purses. The book, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not, really. You've got to buy this. This is what will keep this poet alive is actually uh, this writing alive is, is you're buying it. It's striking that the name we associate with literary quality, you know, the one you might say, well, this is so incredible and amazing that it didn't have to be commercial to become famous, has in the dedication an exhortation to buy because it is the buying and reading and passing on that keeps the work alive. You know, it occurs to me now that we have just made a whole episode that functions as a giant rationalization about why it is good to buy a whole bunch of books. I mean, what we've learned is that if we don't, we will basically have failed Shakespeare. Okay, one more question. I know you've been trying really hard to avoid this subject, but after doing all this work on Shakespeare and his friends and the first folio and everything, what do you make of the whole, but did Shakespeare really exist question? The thing is, if you think there is some conspiracy to mask Shakespeare's true identity, then you have to believe that Hemingya Cundell and Edward Blunt and the printer Isaac Jaggard and the half dozen or so compositors and Ben Johnson, a famous playwright who wrote an impassioned foreword that all of them had to be in on it. Luckily, I've got backup on this one, too. You have to be really, really deep into a conspiracy theory to think that all this evidence about Shakespeare, about from people who knew him, the picture, the collection, all of that is a manufactured you know, conspiracy to hide someone else's uh, identity. You have to be really into that to see all that evidence as planted rather than, than genuine. I buy it. Plus, I like the they did it all for friendship story better anyway. Me too. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill and special production assistance from Jeremy Desmond. Emma Smith's book on the making of the first folio is called The Making of the First Folio, and she has written extensively about it and Shakespeare elsewhere. Our thanks to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring this season of Annotated. Go to tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for great audiobook recommendations. And to celebrate Season 2, Penguin Random House Audio is giving away my favorite 10 books about books that came out last year. So to enter for a chance to win them, go to bookriot.com slash annotated2. That's the number two. And if you like Annotated and want there to be more, the best, most helpful thing you can do right now is go rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And telling other people to listen doesn't hurt either. And until next time, thanks for listening.